Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly biotechnology podcast that's not just about biotechnology. Providing information to help you change hearts and minds. Moving innovations to application with communication. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor at the University of Florida, and this is the podcast we do every Saturday morning to share a little bit of science. And today I'm joined by Brady Homer. And Brady's a graduate student over in integrative cardiac physiology, right? Yes, at the Integrative <laughs> Cardiovascular Physiology Lab, but okay, well, it's, close it's a mouthful either way. <laughs> but, but, you know, we're, we're going to talk about sleep today and mostly like the restorative functions in sleep. But I really was excited to have Brady on. He's kind of been the best recent discovery. Um, so uh, we, we connected a few weeks ago, maybe. But when we connected, I was really excited to see your... Um, web presence and the things that you've done in science communication. So could you tell us a little bit about how you got started in sharing different aspects of science and, and why you chose the medium you did? Sure thing. So being involved in science, I obviously um, am reading the research literature pretty often and I decided that translating this research was something I really wanted to do. And so I began using a little WordPress blog where I would write weekly posts on studies that I thought were cool. So if I came across a cool study on exercise or health, cardiovascular physiology, nutrition, all things I'm interested in, I would go and write a little blog post about the study, try to translate it into a more um, user-friendly kind of perspective rather than what you would just see reading in the research article. And from there, I decided I wanted to write a little bit more long form. So I took to medium.com where you're also, you also have a presence among some other people that I follow. And I just began to blog about these health topics. And I started veering away from individual research studies and sort of culminating uh, posts on just different topics. So whether it's endurance exercise or just the um, different sides of nutrition you see these days. And then different uh, exercise studies and things like that. So I would pull together all this research and just write these longer stories, integrate a bit of my perspective on it rather than just what I would see in the paper. 
Um, and then just sort of try to tell the story with it because I think that's, I think that's what science a lot is about and what people appreciate more from scientists like us, especially if we can, rather than just explain, um, uh, this was our experiment, this was our finding, um, you know, how does this tell a story and contribute to the general understanding of science for both scientists and the public? I mean, I really like your stuff. Uh, do you get other feedback or do you get feedback, say, from your department or your advisor? Do other people get excited about the work you're doing? A few people in my department will come and tell me that they've read various stories. Um, I also do a little blogging for the American Physiological Society. I'll write some uh posts like once a month for them. And so some of my colleagues will read those. Other than that, though, it's mostly people, you know, I'll share my medium work on Facebook and I'll get comments and people seem to like it. I mean, I hope they do. You can see your stats so I can see which stories are more popular. And, you know, surprisingly, I mean, I've had over a couple stories with a couple thousand views. And so that was surprising to me. Um, It's just the power of social media, for sure. And the power that one person sharing it can sort of branch out to a bunch of other people. So if I share a story on Twitter, people will respond to that and will kind of engage in a pretty, pretty dynamic exchange of information when I'm publishing these stories and then sparking conversations, which is kind of my point of them writing them in the first place. And there's a lot of people I meet who are graduate students or postdocs, and I always recommend that having this kind of science communication presence and writing science or deciphering science on places like Medium or WordPress blogs, that that can have a very powerful effect in the long-term career as you develop that dossier showing a willingness to integrate with or interact with the public. And you really have done it right. I think that you do exactly what I always recommend. You write it in one place and then share it in others, and you do see the effects of that. But were you on the fence about doing this, and what would you recommend to other people? Because what I hear all the time is, well, I'm afraid to put my ideas out there, or I don't want to be on social media because I don't want to argue with idiots. What would you recommend to them? I guess the first part about being just hesitant to share the ideas. It was less of a perspective of, oh, I'm scared to kind of share my thoughts because I don't think my thoughts are too divisive. You know, I'm writing about (laughs) what actually exists and the research studies and more so translating it rather than postulating (laughs) some sort of crazy hypothesis. Um, You're just a shill for big circadian (laughs) rhythms. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Big exercise. Yeah, they're out to get you. But I guess, first of all, my hesitance would come from you know, just making sure I have time to do this because obviously I'm in my third year of a PhD. I have lots of work going on in the lab. We have research studies going on, but I also had to convince myself that, yes, I think I do have the time to do this. A couple hours a week of blogging, you know, I could be spending that watching TV. So, and it's really something I enjoy doing. And so I can definitely find the time for it. So for students, I guess, who are putting that as their first barrier, oh, I don't have the time, I would say you definitely do. And also you're doing the research already. That's what I was also um, convinced me. You know, I'm reading hours of research in the lab per week. Why not take a couple of these studies and translate them into a blog post that I can just share? Um, and so in addition to these manuscripts, I'll have kind of this you know, what I call pleasure writing, um, just a way to get my ideas out in a different, on a different medium. But a lot of criticism is meant to be, and this is what I always had trouble with. A lot of criticism is meant to be positive and is meant to be, you know, help you reshape your arguments or rethink the way you do things. It's just that people aren't very good about how they 
phrase things necessarily in that email or um, a, a Twitter post or whatever. Uh, those things do kind of lend themselves to be misinterpreted when they're criticism. And I think that just kind of thinking, giving the benefit of the doubt to the sender and saying they mean this in the most wonderful soft way. And I'm just going to go with their, go with the idea that they're, they're giving me great advice. You know, of course there's times that it's very clear that's not the case. Do you think that um, this kind of writing has made your scientific writing stronger? It has, because I think the, there's a, I think there's a very important part in science writing to tell a story, whether it is in a manuscript or a blog post. So I think it definitely goes back and forth. So my science, my scientific writing helps my personal writing and my personal writing helps my scientific writing just in terms of helping me craft a manuscript. If I'm crafting the methods section and the discussion section, I'm able to just sort of tell more of a story rather than just this, you know, copy and paste uh, results type of thing. So I definitely think it has helped me both write science and just both think about science because when I'm doing science, I'm thinking about, I think it's important to think about, you know, how could this be criticized? If you're designing an experiment, you want to think about in terms of, you know, what your, what your grant reviewers might say about it, but also what, you know, when this gets published, what, what criticisms could people have? So if you think about that a priori, um, you might be able to fix those problems before they exist. And then I also, so I guess I had a question for you, um, when you were just telling me about critics and things like that on social media, I've obviously experienced it and you probably have too, but the sort of, I'm not going to phrase it right, but where the Dunning-Kruger effect comes in, where you have people who, you know, obviously aren't as educated in this topic as you sort of telling you what you know, or telling you that your ideas were wrong. Um, I'm curious as to how you deal with that, at least on social media. Yeah, and I think this is a big difference between how those of us who are uh, educators, you know, where our main job is professor to get in front of a room and talk to people who maybe don't have information. And, you know, there are customers who are there to get that information. And you have to treat everybody like that and give everybody the benefit of the doubt. Uh, Even last night, I had somebody on a website um, tell me all about how herbicides are killing bees and telling me about, you know, mechanisms of action of herbicides that are totally wrong and problems with bees that are totally wrong. And it would have been easy to say, look, you idiot, you know, but, but it was nice to be able to say, let me tell you, you know, why bees and plants are so important to me and why the chemistries that we use to manage them are important. And here's, um, and here's what I know. And, and it was really cool because other people um, also chimed in to reinforce what I was saying. And it really is about giving somebody the benefit of the doubt and remembering that they are really victims of a tremendous um, bad information resource that the Internet has become and that we have to be a little bit of a trusted island for them. And I, I think that's something that when we realize that's our mission, rather than simply correcting bad information, you know, being the trusted resource, that that's when things will change. Yeah. And I think that was also one of the reasons I kind of decided to take to this writing because like you, I'm sure, and all scientists, but, you know, we get fed up with these often skewed media headlines that cover a study and are totally just whether the article displaces what actually occurred in the research or not, the title of the media headline, the clickbait headline for lack of a better term 
on its own, it's just, I see that I'm like, well, the public is being misinformed. And so if you can have scientists who can write similar quality to what the journals and the news media is covering, but explain it in much better terms that are more accurate, you'll have this, um, where, where the information is being properly disseminated rather than skewed to sort of just get clicks and then um, generated and shared and um, just a large sharing of misinformation. And I think it's important for scientists to um, take a responsibility in terms of not letting other people tell our story. No, you're exactly right. And I know that, you know, this week I got to debunk a paper that was, I mean, sadly, it was published in Science and it was really a well-done paper, but the authors didn't realize is that they were throwing clickbait to university communications people and mostly to, uh, you know, certain diet activists. And, you know, I had to correct what this was about, you know, and I won't go into the details here just for time. But, um, but it is important for scientists to remember that as you write that introduction or that abstract or that title, that look for ways that can be misinterpreted because it will be, and uh, to fit somebody's agenda. And on that note, so tell me a little bit about your research. Yeah, so right now we have a few projects going on. Our main focus is a vascular function. And so we really focus on the mechanisms by which exercise can um, improve the function of the vasculature. So we do a technique primarily, well, two techniques. So I'll just discuss them briefly. So one is called flow-mediated dilation. And so what that involves is cutting off the circulation essentially to the arm for five minutes. And when we release that, it leads to a vasodilation of your brachial artery. And we can measure the capacity of the artery to dilate. And that's a good marker of cardiovascular function. It's actually been shown to predict long-term cardiovascular risk in populations from, you know, younger, healthy adults all the way up to people with diabetes. And so there's actually a nice clean curve that can show, you know, whatever percentage your brachial artery dilation is, um, it can pretty accurately predict your risk of future cardiovascular disease. And then um, sort of applying to our topic today, we actually decided to study the effects of sleep deprivation on endothelial function. So a bunch of studies have shown that after working a night shift, it, uh, medical residents or night shift workers actually have reduced endothelial function. And in addition to that, people who are constantly sleep deprived, who have been working in shift work for longer periods of time, they have lower vascular function compared to healthy normal adults. So that was sort of an interesting finding, along with the recent findings that cardiovascular disease risk is just heightened in people who even just self-report lower sleep. So if you're getting less than uh, about six hours a night, even that has been associated with higher risk of cardiovascular disease, obesity, diabetes, um, a bunch of diseases. So, you know, moral of the story, sleep is important, but we wanted to show more mechanistically what happens when you're sleep deprived. And we're also interested in the acute effects of exercise, so how the vascular responds to one single bout, because that will help us explain what happens with exercise training. Yeah, so it ties in really well with physiology and what we're going to be talking about with our guests today, which mainly deals with sleep and kind of the restorative function of sleep. And you mentioned it in terms of vascular health, but he's going to be telling us a little bit about how their evidence suggests that this repairs chromosome effects in the brain. And with that, we're going to go to our guest right here. 
And now we're here with Professor Lior Applebaum. He's on the Faculty of Life Sciences and Multidisciplinary Brain Research Center at Bar-Ilan University. Uh, this is in Israel. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Applebaum. Hello, hello. <laughs> yeah, so thank you so much for joining us. I think this is a really intriguing paper and something that um, I'm excited to have you on as a guest. We really have to start out by asking the question, what is this thing that we call sleep? Could you give us just an idea of why, you know, where it comes from and maybe why it's important? Okay, so all animals uh, have to sleep and all animals that were studied, all animals with nervous system uh, uh, are sleeping. And the question is why? Because if we think about sleep is a very dangerous behavior and not very good for survival because if a human, for example, if we fall asleep on the wheel, we can have an accident and if a deer fall asleep, in uh, Africa, a lion can uh, eat it. So you are exposed to predator. So it, it, it seems that it doesn't make sense for, so if you think about survival, to fall asleep. So obviously this suggests or strongly uh, suggests that uh, sleep is essential. It's vital for, for uh, the brain, for the behavior. And you must sleep in order to do some kind of process that uh, the brain cannot survive without this process. Yeah, sure. Um, so, Dr. Applebaum, you obviously described from the aspect of neurons why the why the topic of sleep is important, why it's important for all animals and different species. Um, so maybe I'm curious, outside of maybe the single neuron level, just why is sleep important? And then also at that neuronal level, why is sleep important? And then also, um, just what happens when we're sleep deprived? Um, as Dr. Folto yeah. was saying, uh, a lot of us have sleep habits that might not be adequate. Um, a lot of us are staying up way too late. So what happens if we extend um, our wakefulness hours maybe longer than we should? Exactly. So this is exactly what we, we our new findings suggest. So what we suggest that during wakefulness, uh, our brain, or if we speak about a single neuron, a single neuron accumulate DNA damage. And when I say damage, it's not a very dangerous or something. I mean, it's a natural process that happens inside uh, each cell. So a lot of uh, DNA breaks or double strand breaks occur. And the repairs in order to a normal physiology of the cell. And the repair system uh, corrected in real time. But what we found in neuron and that the, during wakefulness, uh, DNA damage is accumulated. And if you ask about the sleep deprivation, for example, so if we sleep deprive the fish, DNA damage is even more accumulated. And only when the fish go to sleep, when the organism go to sleep, we also saw that the DNA damage is reduced and go back to normal levels. And when we look carefully at the, this, the mechanism and we use uh, real-time imaging in single cell, what we found that during a wakefulness, when the fish is awake, a chromosome dynamics or the movement of the chromosomes is uh, is is low. So they have a, like a basal activity; they're just moving around, do whatever they do during the wakefulness, transcription, etc. And and it's low. And and surprisingly, when the fish went to sleep. We suddenly saw that specifically in neuron chromosome dynamics increase and typically increase by twofold. So this was very strange because when you think about the brain, you 
at least that we thought that during sleep everything you know calmed down but actually we saw that uh, it's the opposite that during sleep chromosome dynamics is increased so we have two phenomena here one chromosome dynamics increase and second dna damage is reduced and then with a, a genetic experiment we were able to causally link those two phenomena and to so, to show that increased chromosome dynamic is necessary to reduce this uh, DNA damage. So back to your question about sleep deprivation. So if you sleep deprive the animal and the, and the neuron, chromosome dynamics stay low all the time. So DNA damage is keep accumulating. So you have to allow the fish or maybe human even to go to sleep in order to the chromosome to start moving around doing the more efficient repair and then the DNA damage is reduced back to normal. In your paper you mentioned that uh, the zebrafish or fish in general are a little different than birds and animals with respect to this kind of phenomenon and, and what is different about the way that fish sleep from birds and animals? So in general, I mean, we when we say that all animals sleep, we it's all based on behavioral criteria. So there is a few behavioral criteria for sleep. For example, a human, we will sleep during the night. We will sleep on the bed. We will uh, our erosion threshold will be uh, reduced, which means that it will be more difficult to wake us up if we sleep or just lying. I mean, or awake. And all those behavioral criteria are used to define sleep in different animals. Another criteria to define sleep is uh, EEG, as, uh, as I'm sure most people are aware. So EEG is uh, the waves, the EEG pattern in the brain is different during wakefulness and during different stage of sleep, non-REM and REM sleep. But this EEG pattern is uh, unique to uh, is unique to mammals and a little bit and also for birds and maybe for a few reptile species but it was not detected in zebrafish and obviously not in uh, invertebrates so in zebra uh, so in uh, non-mammalian animals or, uh, or excluding the birds we define sleep solely by behavioral criteria but still, it's all, when we speak about it, it's all the matter of definition. How do we, human, define sleep? But if we use behavior, we all sleep. I mean, all animals sleep, also jellyfish. So what we suggest now, that in addition to EEG and behavioral criteria, maybe, based on the study that is true only to zebrafish, I have to remind you, so we did it only in zebrafish, what was he suggest now? that maybe based on increased chromosome dynamics, we can actually define the uh, sleep using this cellular marker, which means that increased chromosome dynamics reflect a sleeping cell and maybe a sleeping uh, organism. Dr. Applebaum, the hypothesis of the paper is that sleep is a time of chromosomal repair. Can you um, briefly describe the methods that you used uh, to test this hypothesis? Yes, so repair is happening all the time. Of course, uh, repair happening also during wakefulness, during sleep, in all cell. I mean, we have DNA damage, double strand break, and the repair system keep fixing everything all the time. Otherwise, obviously, our cell will be at risk for different disease, uh, cell death even, or cancer, etc. 
what we found is that during sleep, this repair is more efficient. Um, and when I say efficient, it's, it's more efficient either because the repair is working harder or because we have less DNA damage. So what we test is we basically test uh, quantified the number of uh, uh, DNA damage or the number of sites of DNA damage in a single cell during the day and during the night in real time. And we saw that uh, during sleep deprivation, this damage is increased, or the opposite is also true. If, if you sleep, uh, use the drugs to sleep, the, to make the fish sleepy during the day, DNA damage is uh, reduced. So this is the correlation between the damage and the behavior. If you wanted to put this in very simple terms for people to be able to explain to others, what would be a really good analogy? So when we think about our brain and, uh, and maintenance and why chromosomes are suddenly uh, more active during sleep, uh, so if we think about it and why uh, DNA repair is more efficient during the night, so a very uh, good example, I think, is just the cities that with a lot of traffic during the day and a lot of cars, etc., that during the day, a lot of the road damage is accumulated, right? And, and uh, trash everywhere, etc. And you can clean it during uh, the daytime, during uh, rush hours, but it won't be efficient because the trucks of the repair, uh, of the road repair, uh, will be stuck in the traffic and it won't be efficient. However, during the night, during the offline period, when the city is not busy with wakefulness or when the brain is not there, uh, uh, busy with wakefulness, then suddenly the trucks that repair the road and the trash uh, truck, etc., they move faster and they can do this repair uh, very efficiently and very fast. And this is how we think about uh, uh, the chromosomes, that suddenly they have time and the energy also, that all, was, all resources, the cell resources and energy were dedicated to learning, to learning and wakefulness and all what the cells doing doing do during wakefulness now during sleep when they offline they have the resource and energy to be uh, busy with nuclear maintenance and with cellular maintenance and do this uh, repair more efficiently and when you did your experiments you were almost essentially painting chromosomes with fluorescent proteins and can you explain for the listeners how that works and how you were able to use specific colors to highlight different portions of the chromosome so you could observe those dynamics and measure them? Yeah, so this is the fun part of the whole project. So this whole project is uh, very nice and unique because you can actu actually visualize moving chromosome inside a single neuron inside a live animal. So this is very, a live vertebrate even. And this is very unique to the zebrafish. So what we do in order to tag those chromosomes and to see them moving, and what we use, we use different proteins that are known to interact with this DNA, with this, with chromosomes. For example, the name is telomere and centromere. It's different proteins that naturally interact and bind to DNA, to chromosomes. And when we and we tag those protein with fluorescent protein, we this is where we back to the jellyfish and the corals. So, as you, as many people know, corals and 
and jellyfish are very fluorescent and they have fluorescence protein called GFE and RFE, green fluorescent protein, red fluorescent protein. So we take those fluorescent protein, bind them to the uh, proteins that interact with the DNA, and then basically what we have is a glowing puncta or a glowing dot that uh, bind to the DNA. And then these glowing small dots, and we speak about very small scale, so nanometers of uh, uh, dots inside the cell. So a, fu a full cell is for about 10 micron. So those dots are a few nanos, nanometers. And, and then we can basically track the movement, make a real-time uh, movies. So take picture and another picture and another picture and, and make a movie of those moving dots inside the fish and of course the fish is alive so we can do it during the night during the day after sleep deprivation before sleep deprivation using different physiology different pharmacology and just track those moving chromosomes in different cells wherever we want in the brain so everything is made of genetic combination of genetics and live imaging in a zebrafish and so this is really the stepping off point is that you have a zebrafish that you can monitor as you either induce or, or resist sleep and then be able to monitor how those chromosomes move because the telomeres and the centromeres are painted differently, uh, are fluorescent or fluoresce differently under microscope. And you can actually watch how they move and change through time. And so we'll, when we come back from the break, we'll talk, we'll talk about how you were able to do this specifically. We're speaking with Professor Lior Applebaum. He's a faculty of life sciences and multidisciplinary brain research center at Bar Ilan University in Israel. This is the Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hello, Talking Biotech listeners. My name is Nick Syke. And I wanted to take just a quick moment to tell you about No Ideas Media. That's no with a K and a W. It's a media company I've recently started, and its express purpose is to have pragmatic conversations about divisive topics. And I'm willing to bet that since you're here listening to a biotechnology podcast, you'd probably agree that a pragmatic conversation about this topic could benefit a lot of people, especially when we're talking about biotechnology in food. This is the first topic I wanted No Ideas Media to focus on, and I wanted to learn it pretty well, so I traveled like all over the place. I interviewed a schwack of experts, I make the videos with all these interviews, and I'd love you to check them out. You can find them by searching No Ideas Media on YouTube or Facebook. Remember, that's no as in knowledge. The videos are perfect for people who aren't super familiar with the science, so I would really encourage you to share them, especially with people you know who need to take a look at this a little more pragmatically. Follow No Ideas Media on Facebook and get in on the conversations there. It also really helps us if you subscribe to the No Ideas Media YouTube channel. Plus, that way you'll always know when there's something new and exciting to watch and share. And I mean, let's face it, we all want to be in the know, right? That's why you're listening to this podcast after all, which I think I'll let you get back to about now. Thanks a lot. And we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Professor Lior Applebaum, and we're talking about sleep and its relationship to DNA repair, specifically with respect to chromosome dynamics and the way that this uh, was unveiled by looking at live imaging of zebrafish chromosomes. And the work was published recently in the, in the journal 
nature communications. And when we look at this, we the results show that sleep results in changes in what you're referring to as chromosome dynamics. And what exactly does that mean? So when we say chromosome dynamics, we mean we mean the volume of movement of each chromosome. So chromosomes are not just stable. I mean, our DNA inside the cell, it just, it's moving all the time because it does a lot of stuff. I mean, many it interacts with many proteins, many genes are transcribed, DNA repair, DNA breaks, etc. Many processes occur in the chromosome and they constantly move. So when uh, we, say, we say dynamics, we mean that their dynamics, their volume of movement per time during the day is low. And when they, uh, during the night, when the fish go to sleep, this movement, this dynamics is high. So the volume of movement is high. In the paper, um, you described how you were using melatonin to induce sleep in the zebrafish. So first of all, I'm curious, what, what did that show? And furthermore, is the type of quality of sleep that you get when, you would, um, when it's induced by melatonin the same quality of sleep as natural sleep would be? And do you see the same types of repair inside the chromosomes that you do in natural sleep versus sleep that you might induce using melatonin? Yeah, so this is a very nice question. So uh, fish, unlike us, I mean, uh, are highly, highly, highly uh, sensitive to, to melatonin. So they sleep primarily during the night when melatonin is secreted. And it was shown by several pa- papers, including ours, that melatonin is a very strong sleep-promoting a hormone in zebrafish, which means that if you give a fish a, a melatonin during the day when it's supposed to be awake, they immediately, when I say immediately, the few, it's like a minute or less, uh, they will uh, go to sleep uh, uh, during the, this whole process. And if you ask about quality, uh, we are not sure about the quality of sleep. What we measure in the paper and we use melatonin to induce sleep and to see how this affects chromosome dynamics. Because as, as I just say, chromosome dynamics is constantly low during the day and it's constantly high during the night. So maybe this is related to day-night or in the circadian clock and not to sleep and wake. And in order to differentiate between these two processes, circadian clock and sleep, we induce sleep with melatonin during the day and indeed, what we saw that during the day when sleep, are, uh, sleep under melatonin treatment, chromosome dynamics is increased in a similar way as it increased during natural sleep during the night. So if you ask about quality, so it depends how we measure quality. If we measure quality by chromosome dynamics, so yes, melatonin treatment and natural uh, nighttime sleep is similar because the chromosome dynamics is increased by twofold in both treatment. But if you ask about general quality of sleep, so this is many more experiments need to to be done in order to answer this question. And I thought that was one of the high points of the experiment was that you were able to separate the, uh, the effect of sleep that was purely induced because of sleep versus, like you say, circadian rhythm effects that would tend to fluctuate with day night. But the other question is tissue specificity. Is this strictly something that's happening in those neurons, or is this something that every cell just does during the regenerative process of sleeping? So, uh, obviously, DNA repair and DNA damage is occurring in, in, in all cells. I mean, uh, 
uh, skin cell, etc. Uh, so we t- uh, test uh, DNA damage and chromosome dynamics in a f- in a two more cell population. For example, we try to see uh, to visualize chromosome dynamics in a, a glial cell. We also try to visualize chromosome dynamics in endothelial cell, which are uh, makes the st- the vascular system. And in both uh, cell types, we indeed saw chromosome dynamics when we also saw DNA damage, but we did not find any differences between day and night. So we, what we uh, think or suggest that in those cells, this repair and damage is happening in real time all the time. And those cells do not require sleep or this long period of a, a loss of a sensory to the environment and also only neurons which are busy all the time during wakefulness with this uh, input that come from the environment require this relatively long period of offline period let's say let's call it that uh, allow them to to take care of themselves and to to this uh, maintenance so for now if we speak about specificity i cannot exclude other cell type but at least we could not find uh, for now in two other cell types these uh, differences. Obviously, we need to test more cells, and this is in the to-do list, to try to do it in muscles, in heart cells, in other cells, in other cell types, and maybe this is not only, only happening in neurons. But this is what we see for now. Why do neurons accumulate this damage, these double strand breaks during waking times? Is that a result of purely physiological activity or is it perhaps due to environmental factors that we're exposed to? Um, Could you expand a little bit on what the source of those double strand breaks are? Yeah, so this is a combination of all what you just said. So all cells, including uh, a neuron, uh, Accumulate or have a, a double strand break for, for for many different reasons. If you think about very trivial uh, example, is like skin uh, cells have uh, are exposed to radiation, UV light, which is a very strong uh, double strand break uh, inducer, uh, and uh, uh, ROS activity. I mean, uh, reactive oxygen are very strong uh, inducer of double strand break, and of course, uh, errors in a different enzyme cause double strand break, a natural process. Many enzymes just cut the DNA in order to allow transcription, etc. And what is unique to neuron, and this is work by two several other groups that show it before us in the other work, is that even neuronal activity itself cause double strand break in order to ex- express a, a very fast different uh, gene. So the activity causes double strand break. And again, it's not like a harmful to the cell. It just allows more efficient uh, expression uh, of genes, etc. But uh, at some point, you have to make sure that you repair everything and you're back to normal. Uh, and this is why neurons basically accumulate uh, this DNA damage. And so if you were able to induce double strand breaks. Like, let's say you were able to deliver, you know, like in the paper, uh, deliver some sort of chemical uh, stress or, uh, or, you know, just if, if we induce double strand breaks, does that induce the organism to go to sleep? Yeah. So this is a very intriguing question. I mean, do we, can we uh, 
is the double strand break is basically the homeostatic uh, uh, cause the homeostatic pressure. So we try the, this uh, using uh, uh, chemistry. I mean, we induce double strand break using a specific reagent uh, globally in the entire fish. And what we saw that when the fish are exposed to double strand break and the double strand break is accumulated, it's still awake. So we did it during the daytime when the fish is awake. However, when we uh, uh, retract or clean the, 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 the water from this reagent and let the, the fish recover, it's indeed induced sleep. So fish that were treated with this uh, double strand break inducer went to sleep after the, the inducer was cleaned out from the water, and and th- and this suggests uh, that indeed, if you accumulate double strand break and if you induce increase of double strand break, uh, this indeed uh, trigger sleep. So this is very similar to sleep deprivation. If you sleep deprive the, the fish, they, they accumulate double strand break, and then immediately after you finish to sleep deprive them, they go to sleep and even sleep more in the following day and show this what we call sleep rebound so they will sleep more during the following day and until they finish the repair and maybe another you know related question when i start thinking about my own situation and you know how how i feel sometimes during the middle of the day that you know naps are really restorative so just these little episodes of getting some sleep and are these brought on because of either something in the diet or some sort of activity that potentially causes this kind of damage that needs acute repair? And is there any evidence from the zebrafish that even just a, that even just a short bout of damage can lead to a proportionately short nap, let's say, to repair that damage? Yeah, so so we did not do this uh, uh, proportional experiments, and this is a very interesting uh, uh, follow-up uh, uh, study to see how efficient those uh, a short versus long period of sleep on repair. Uh, so, and also, of course, you ask about yourself. I mean, we need first to show that what we saw we see in zebrafish is true also to mammals and and, and to invertebrate, and to see that this is indeed the mechanism. Uh, this is obviously what we suggest, but uh, need to show it that it's also true in an- other animals. And this is indeed exper- a very nice experiment to do in the future, to try to do between one minute to 10 hours sleep and to see how it will affect uh, the repair and chromosome dynamics in general. So what does this tell us about sleep hygiene? What can we learn from the zebrafish that might help us be more healthy as humans? So there are lots of studies coming out on how sleep deprivation and um, poor sleep are linked to various diseases. You obviously have a focus in neurons in the brain. So how can we apply this to general human health and perhaps some recommendations for humans regarding sleep? Yes, so of course this is uh, it's known for for years that sleep is very important to human health and for the brain performance in general and this was shown in many sleep deprivation experiments and in many animals but we, what what we bring now is we suggest a mechanism we suggest that we have to sleep or we need sleep in order to prevent accumulating accumulation of DNA damaging neurons so obviously this is also means that we need a good sleep. And what, uh, interestingly, uh, like a month or two months uh, ago, uh, in uh, a little bit 
uh, in parallel to our paper, uh, a, a paper was in Hong Kong showed that uh, doctors uh, that uh, exhibit uh, sleep deprivation and they measure uh, DNA damage and they show that even in human, uh, uh, those uh, doctors that did not sleep well, they accumulate uh, or their DNA damage was increased. So when we, if you ask about what, what do we think about uh, the effect of sleep on, uh, on our health, so yes, please go to sleep. It, it helps to your health. And if we think about disease, so most neurodegenerative disease or in general in aging, it's always accompanied by uh, sleep disturbances. So this is one of the major symptoms of many uh, neurological disorders, sleep uh, disturbance. So uh, it's, it's obviously uh, important to go to sleep. And we suggest that maybe it's important because it allows your brain to keep his, the cells intact and keep the repair system efficient. Very good. So if we want to learn more about the project or maybe follow it online, do you have any uh, website or possibly a social media presence that relates to the work or your laboratory? Well, we just have the uh, our lab uh, website. Oh, it's Applebaum Lab, one word. Okay, Applebaum Lab. Okay, I'll make sure I get that on the website. And thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Uh, thank you very much, Brady, for joining me on that. Yeah, Dr. Foltz, uh, thanks a lot for having me on. It was a great time. Yeah, this is really cool. I hope you do it again. We'll, we'll do this again sometime. But, you know, mostly everybody, you know, hopefully uh, there's a good punchline in here that maybe sleep, it does have more of an effect that uh, than we give it. And certainly the fact that everything seems to sleep may have a role in uh, regenerative effects of chromosomes and long-term sleep health. So with that, get a good night's sleep tonight. Get up in the morning and write a review on iTunes. Maybe share this podcast with a friend or family member. Uh, Our numbers are growing again and looking really good. So thank you very much for sharing. Thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech. Sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.